0: Welcome to the Cyprian Commentary Podcast, where each week we have a discussion with a Cyprian contributor or guest about a published article or a current event. This is episode forty-eight, the Gospel of Ruth. Hello, I'm Dustin Messer, Cyprian Commentary contributor, and your host for today's episode. Today, I will be talking with the co-author of a recent commentary on the Book of Ruth, my friend and pastor in Pensacola, Florida, Yuri Brito. Yuri, how are you? Dustin, I'm doing fine, thank you. Always a joy to talk to you, brother. It's good to talk to you as well. I have to say, whenever I saw, I had known the your Ruth commentary was uh, in the works for a while with you and uh, Rich Lusk wrote it. And whenever I saw it was available uh, to buy, it was I think the most excited I've been uh, about a book in a really long time, and not just because. I know you, but because I had read some of the Ruth commentary, and I think it is is—it's uh, going to do a lot of good for a lot of people. So, my first question about it, and if it's okay, I'm just going to talk to you about the book of Ruth. But before we get to Ruth, I want to ask you about the commentary. What's the story behind the commentary? How did you and Rich decide to write this?
1: The commentary was um, a labor of love, really. Uh, Rich Lask and I have been good friends for over a decade, and we have. We share just a lot of things in common, especially when it comes to you know, the, the theological discourse of the day. We have a lot of common themes that we cover both in our churches, in our preaching, in our theological writing. So he was an easy person to pursue for this task here. I remember as I was preparing for the book of Ruth to preach through it in my congregation, I was looking for some research online. And of course, I looked through Jim Jordan's and other commentaries, but then I saw that Rich had taught through the book of Ruth in his uh, Sunday school class in his congregation. And I listened to those uh, lectures and they were extremely helpful. And so I thought this is just in God's perfect providence here. I contacted him and he was very willing to do a joint project on Ruth. And so that was the um, the initial stages, which uh, really began seven years ago and just came to its uh, delivery, its uh, final production just a couple weeks ago.
0: And I know how hard you labored at this. It probably did feel like a delivery for you and Rich. And uh, we are all happy to meet this new bubbly little book. Uh, You call in the book. There's actually a lot of discussion about what sort of book Ruth is, its genre. And I really like the descriptor y'all gave it. You call it a theological romance. So I wonder if you just kind of set out. Uh, what's the book of Ruth about and how is uh, theological romance? It almost sounds like a weird section of a bookstore that next to the Amish romance. Tell us
1: about Well, I think the intention is to think of this short book as a romantic book. We don't want to undermine what I think is a very general assessment of the book itself. But when you add theological to it, it takes on a whole new uh, paradigm so that there is a purpose to the romance. The romance is not an end in and of itself, but it points to something greater. It points to a, a greater story, a greater narrative that's developed throughout the Bible. And so as we talk about in the commentary, Ruth is kind of a, a, a microcosm. It's a, a small world summarized and packed in 80 few verses that is developed throughout the Bible. So we call it the gospel of Ruth because it's the an example of the romance that God has with his people throughout the ages. And so the theological dimension adds a, a very, very unique caveat to the romance. It's a romantic book, undoubtedly. It's beloved by women in our congregation. As I preached through it, it was very well received, which I think is a good reason for pastors to preach through it also, because I think it immediately... Receives that uh, attention uh, from the ladies in the church. Um, But also, there's a theological dimension to it that I think gives a a, a beauty to the book that's often not seen when you only give it a surface read. Yeah, what I thought,
0: and I've read, I haven't read the whole commentary, but I've read a lot in it. And what I kept thinking was that phrase, and you call it, you know, the Gospel of Ruth, but the phrase theological romance, I think, Allow, on the one hand, it seems like it would have been easy for y'all to sort of ride, 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 ride roughshod over the actual particular story of Ruth and maybe leave out the romance part, right? Uh, but I think the uh, other alternative that has probably been pursued in a lot of sort of pop evangelical commentaries of Ruth is you leave out the theological part and it becomes it's, sort of different an exemplar for women, and uh, and you lose that theological part. And I thought y'all held those together, where both you get the text, the particularity of the story, but also it's placed within this larger
1: gospel narrative mm-hmm. of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think the tendency is that, as I read through various commentaries and preparing for it here, of course, we had a, a very solid foundation in the works of James Jordan. We can talk about it a little bit later. But as I read through various commentaries and online conversations of Ruth, there was very little attention given to uh, the depth and and the meaning and the typology and the rich symbolism of the text. And so I think that's one clear difference that any pastor or parishioner will recognize in this little commentary is that there is a great focus in excavating the, the gems that sometimes are not found in modern commentaries. Yeah.
0: And I do want to ask you, I want to back up and ask about sort of the methodology of of the book and and, uh, Jordan's influence on you and so forth. But before we get there, I want to stick with the particularity of Ruth because I have to say in, I don't know, 10 years or so of preaching through books of the Bible, uh, I have to say I've never preached through Ruth. And I think a big part of the reason is I'm a little bit intimidated by it. I think that a lot of people have this view that it is a book for... You know, the the romance part without the theological part. I wonder if you'd give me some tips and <laughs> probably would help other people who maybe have shied away from preaching Ruth and uh, maybe some tips on how to preach through it uh, and maybe just one or two insights from the book uh, that you think make it worthwhile for a whole congregation to be taught
1: from Ruth, right. not just Right. That's a, that's a great question. You know, How do you preach through the book? And, and it's such a compelling story that I think if, if a pastor who has not preached through it, who hopefully now will preach through it, uh, begins a series through the book of Ruth, he needs to really contemplate how it's going to be approached and what messages he wants to convey. And, so, and I think the beauty of preaching through it is that it, it's such a familiar story, which means at the very least that the some of the contextual dimensions are already known by the congregation, even you know, somebody who's been a Christian for a short time has probably already heard of the book of Ruth. It also means that your people have certain expectations of what you're going to say. So I think the commentary um, really offers uh, nuances. Um, it focuses on the language of Ruth, which I think is filled with redemptive meanings, like the names Malon and Kilion, Naomi and Ruth, and also uh, the genealogy in chapter 4, which is just a list of 10 names which are generally overlooked by pastors when they're preaching through it actually has a profound role in the purpose of the book of Ruth. And so I think as a pastor is, is picking up Ruth for the first time to preach it, he needs to really pause in those initial five verses, first of all, because I think those initial five verses, as we dig into the meaning of names, actually establish the trajectory of the book. And so if we simply read those first five verses as a kind of a quick preamble, not having any relevance to the rest of the story, we're going to miss a lot. So that's at least the first tip I would give is really spend some time in those first five verses developing those characters well. And I think the expectations of the people, um, uh, the expectations they have for how we're going to preach will change. And so I think one of the purposes of preaching is to challenge the modern expectations that people have of the book of Ruth. So that even in a short book, there are profound ideas given. And as we have heard many times, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. And so it's very important to actually focus on the details of the book. Yeah. And what
0: I've heard you preach, and I think you're really good at this, uh, what's the balance between when you're preaching through a book, whether it's Ruth or any other book that has a character who really does, uh, model faithfulness. It's called, you know, you talk about the gospel of Ruth and gospel is good news, right? Your Ruth isn't there just to give us some hot tips on living, uh, having a good sex life or living a, a a good life or something. (laughs) And yet, I have heard you before uh, be very, very application oriented, uh, which I think is good. How do you balance that, whether it's Ruth or any other book between on the one hand, uh, giving real, solid commendation? Here's how this should uh, affect your life. But then also saying, and this is good news about what Jesus has done for you. How do you balance the gospel with the, the indicative, with the imperative to be you know, real nerdy about it?
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think it's the 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 paradox of of pastoral ministry is to cultivate a real love for reading the texts with fresh eyes through new eyes, right? But also do the old Francis Schaeffer, you know, "How now shall we live?" element without um, without treating them as if one is more important than the other, which has been really how folks have understood this, that the the indicative is always more important than imperative, as I've heard. Or in other circles, the imperative is always more important than indicative. So I think we need to to bring both into the sermon, which I think is going to require, and I use this word uh, very intentionally, I think is going to require some level of creativity from the minister. Because I think the theological enterprise ought to be a creative enterprise, which means you ought to be reading A heavy dose, I mean, you'll see some of the quotations from Flannery O'Connor we have in the book. I think that kind of reading outside of Ruth is going to help the pastor to cultivate in their congregation a specific way of reading. I mean, I had this conversation with Dr. Karen Pryor last week about how reading outside the text actually helps us grasp and apply the text with greater efficiency. And one of the themes that rises very clearly in Ruth is this conversation between law and, and grace that comes again and again? Is, is Ruth working to merit the favor of Boaz? Is Boaz um, bringing Ruth by grace into his household? And there is a there, and the answer is obvious. It, the answer is yes. It's, it's both and. So, there is a, an applicational dimension that we could, we could add here, one of the very clear ones, which may seem too moralistic for some, but I think it's very abundant in the text, is that Ruth is very faithful to her new found faith. She not only enters Israel with the expectation that she's going to be um, a, a, a child of Israel's God, but Ruth enters Israel and is immediately thrown into the work of what it means to be an Israelite, a disciple of this great king. And so Ruth is is willing to incorporate herself not only to this new nation, but she's willing to incorporate herself into the work of this new nation. So there is a, a, a direct application here um, when it comes to what it means to be a part of a, of a new creation. And so we can develop from, if we establish that foundation, then we can begin looking at details of the text and see how Ruth now has a particular function in this new kingdom project that is being established in Israel's history.
0: Hmm. Uh, you knew I was going to ask you about Jim Jordan next, and that you emphasize uh-huh. through new, eyes, which made me feel like you didn't think I could write my own transition from question to question. So I'll take your bait. <laughs> Speaking of new eyes. Uh, uh, I Jim Jordan has had a really big influence, I know, on you and Rich. You were uh, Jim's pastor while he was in Pensacola. Uh, so I want to ask you sort of the big meta question of just what sort of interpretive grid do you, did, did you and Rich come to with the gospel of Ruth? And what sort of interpretive grid for scripture did Jordan sort of pass down to you and just help develop? And I know you have a lot of other mentors besides just Jordan, but. Uh, what sort of hermeneutic are you writing this book with and are you preaching with?
1: And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, um, the most meaningful, I think, contribution that Jim has had to my life, both pastorally and I think theologically, has been his heavy, heavy emphasis that, as I mentioned earlier, the spirit does not waste his breath. And I think what that does is it creates a sense of expectation for the interpreter. It causes him to look at the text very carefully, but it also forces him to know what the Bible as a whole says. You know, I often tell the story of how um, when people come to Christ, their first tendency is to go to the end of the book, to look what Revelation says, which is one of those books that is most dependent on the Old Testament data, is that John is using his Hebrew forefathers virtually for every text. And I think it's possible that we do that with the book of Ruth, that we look at Ruth without understanding what its general trajectory is in in the flow of redemptive history. And so Jim has taught us to look at the text and ask the question, what is its purpose in the canon of scripture? In the Old Testament, there is this very, very distinct political intention that the authors of the book have when they write these books. And so these are not given a contextually, they're given with the intention of providing Israel some kind of paradigm for how they're to think of the future. So every book in the Bible is future oriented in, in the book of Ruth, particularly, I think that the purpose of, of Ruth is to provide a kind of political track for a future Davidic kingdom. So Ruth is a theological romance preparing Israel for what kind of king would be true and faithful to Israel. And the example of Boaz is given, because his name means strong, as a model for what kind of king Israel needs. And so if we forget that dimension there, we're going to miss really the purpose of the book. And I think what Jim has taught us over the years has been that Every book has a political dimension, but secondly, it has an obvious Christological dimension. And so I think this is where he's helpful, and I I dare to say this, but I think more helpful than Ed Clowney when it comes to his Christology, because Ruth is setting the stage for the Kinsman Redeemer. It's, It's true, but it's a Kinsman Redeemer who has a particular function in Ruth, and simultaneously he points us to a greater Kinsman Redeemer. So I think in the biblical theological tradition, we look at a kinsman redeemer Redeemer figure, and we see, okay, he's pointing us to Jesus. Yes, but we also primarily need to ask, uh, first and foremost, need to ask, what's his purpose in in the text? His purpose in the text is to woo his bride through his generosity, through his strength, to cover his bride under his wings, but also to become a figure of of this new land where God's people can actually glean freely until the end of history and then once we look at these particular applications in the passage we can say okay then how is now Boaz like unto Jesus and we see that Boaz is this unending source of blessing to the foreigner and to the citizen and Jesus the greater Boaz is also this unending source of blessing to the foreigner to the citizens of the land so Jesus is, the ultimate land. He's the ultimate holy space for the people of God, just as Boaz was that immediate provider for Israel. But Boaz has a particular function. So I think these two ideas out of the many themes that we have learned over the years through the writings of James B. Jordan is that the Bible provides, each book of the Bible provides a helpful political trajectory for Israel, but also sets very clearly a a Christological view so that we're never left in the other book wondering, what's this book about? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let me put that in other words and just have you respond to it and see if you think this may be where I'm off in in summing this up. It seems to me that a lot of people would say, or maybe we could just say everybody would say that you can read the Bible from beginning to end and that the end is heavily infused with the beginning, such that, you know, when you read Revelation, I'm not sure there's anyone, dispensational, reformed, or otherwise, who wouldn't say Daniel is really important to understand Revelation. Right. But it seems to me that the, the contention and the emphasis that Jordan has given so many of us is that it's not just that the front can inform the end, the beginning can inform the end, but it's that the end can inform the beginning. In other words, you know, Yes, uh, Jesus is the second Adam, but we can go back and look at Adam, knowing now what we know about Christ, and see Adam through new eyes, having now known Christ, right? And that you can actually read the text backwards in a sense, and that the events that came later have fundamentally changed what happened earlier, changed the way we view it. And just real quick, uh, the classic example I think Peter Lecker gives is, You know, it's like in the moments after uh, John F. Kennedy was shot, he says, what do you call uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in those seconds after he shot Kennedy? Is he an assassin? And Lightheart says he's actually not an assassin at that point because Kennedy is yet to have died. It'll take a couple of hours, right? So Lightheart says for two hours, uh, Oswald is an attempted killer. Uh, an attempted assassin, but the later actor event of, uh, of the president passing away, that later event fundamentally changes uh, Oswald's status in those moments after shooting such that we can say in those moments after the assassin fled to the building, right? Mm. So how do you feel about that sort of looking at it from instead of just going beginning to end, we look at it end to beginning? Well,
1: I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean, fundamentally, I think the Bible is this, you know, to borrow John Frame's words, it is this multi-perspectival. And so, I think, uh, which is why I think there will always be a need for fresh new commentaries, a world without end. For however ten thousand years we have left in this world here before Christ returns, there will always be a need for new insights because there are fresh new insights. Because if you read Ruth, so here is my point. I think I think it follows what you're saying here. If you read Ruth, I think Ruth would have a, a a freshness if it's read in light of 1 Samuel. And so I think Ruth would always have a freshness if you read it in light of 1 Timothy. And so I think the books are so interconnected that there's always something fresh that can be gained through it, because I, I, you know, I think the tendency of American evangelicalism is to see the Bible as these, you know, distinct 66 books, and there are occasional connections. But I'm arguing, following my uh, my uh, you know forefathers in the faith, I'm arguing for a profound theological connectionalism that I think allows us to see the end in light of the beginning, the beginning in light of the end so that there's a a, a fresh perspective to be offered in these books, and also a fresh dose of application to these books, too, that I think uh, we we ought to contemplate. So I think your analysis is is right on. We can see Jesus as a greater Boaz, but we can also see Boaz as a greater Adam. And I think that's where we, we missed the point there, is that Boaz is placed in a particular part of history because... There has already been a movement, a progression from the first Adam, and the first Adam is being represented by various figures. And throughout this progression, there is a noticeable improvement on the first Adam. Now, these improvements all have a a failure, all have a limitation, because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. He's the perfect representation. But there is a sequence that we ought to, to, to see that Boaz is not an isolated figure, he is working as an advanced version of the first Adam who failed in the garden. So I think I, mean, I I think there's a lot of interesting observations you made there, but I think there's, and I think they can play into this multidimensionality that I think the Bible offers. Yeah. Well,
0: you've been real generous with your time. Uh, I have two last questions and I'll ask them both at once and you can answer one or the other or both or totally ignore it and say whatever you want to say. <laughs> The two things I'm genuinely curious about: one is uh, how do you think this commentary would have been different had you and Rich written it from the from a classroom or from an academy? In other words, how did you and yours and Rich's situation as pastors doing this in the context of a church shape the book in a way that we've you read in preparation for the commentary? A lot of commentaries on Ruth that were written in the academy. Uh, How is is that pastoral flavor changed it? And then the other question, and pick one, do both, whatever, is you've sat with this book, Ruth, for seven years, which is pretty amazing. Um, How has sitting on and marinating over one book for that long uh, changed you? What did you get from Ruth uh, spending that much
1: time with Well, that's a great question. That's the um, what John Frame would call it, the existential part of writing a commentary. I think I think that's a very important dimension because I, I don't think you can avoid the emotional ethos that reading through Ruth. And I I can honestly say I probably read through it between seventy five and hundred times. I mean, it doesn't take long, but the more you read it, the more you think, oh, here's another dimension that I missed. In fact, I was reading. A commentary on Ruth written by a Brazilian commentator, and he had an insight there that I didn't catch, which was the 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 um, the example of Ruth approaching and the threshold approaching, Boaz at night, and Boaz is alarmed by her presence and awakens, and he pointed to that as an example of the 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 first garden scene, where Adam is put into this holy coma. And when he awakens suddenly to see this uh, beautiful uh, image bearer next to him, this woman, so that I think the Boaz and Ruth figure also plays into this Adamic and Eve image here. But reading through it again and again and again gave me th- this this profound sense that I'm dealing with something very sacred. And, and so as I, as I read through it, however many times, every time I read through it, and I can honestly say this. There was a new motivation to consider Ruth anew. And it, when you carry this book in your theological womb for seven years, which is a great, perfect number <laughs> biblically, when you carry it for that long, I think your desire to birth it uh, uh, elongates. So it, its I think one of the reasons it took us so long is because there were so many things we wanted to add, so many Uh, um, there was so much emotionalism involved in this birthing process. So I think that's one reason it took so long to publish it. And the other thing is that as we preach through to our congregations, there was this constant communal insight, which I thought Rich and I felt it was really beautiful as people engaged the content of it and always added these new flavors, these existential questions they were going to. How, how does this romance certain sort of plays into the redemptive flavor of biblical history? And so there was a lot of conversation through it, and I think that's that's one reason that it it forced us to look at Ruth not through academic eyes, but through the pastoral and shepherding lenses, which is why you're going to see some application some uh, the appendices in the end focus a little bit on what it means that God covers us under his wings. Where does that imagery come from in Ruth? It didn't appear ex nihilo. It's grounded in something greater than itself. It's grounded in how God covers his children with his love. So there's a pastoral dimension here. And I think we can glean all sorts of husbandry uh, applications. And so the more we meditated on the book, the more we read through it, the more emotionally connected we felt with the book itself and the more we wanted to offer it to God's people. And it took seven years. I'm very grateful it's been published. And so I think it'll be accessible to the parishioner who doesn't have much of a theological background and to the academician who wants to uh, look at the text with fresh eyes and find new insights in it.
0: Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And let me answer the first question in a way that you it would be unseemly if you did, which is that because it came from two pastors, you know, a lot of commentaries are helpful for preachers. They're just good preaching tips, uh, or they're uh, academic. They're helping scholars think through a book more. Um, and this book is so applicable. It's a, a commentary that I would could easily see myself giving to. Uh, a congregant to read or use in a Bible study. I think it just is is a commentary, and you can't say this for for many commentaries, but that should be widely read. Uh, Yuri Brito has been our guest today. His book, along with Rich Lusk, is called "Under His Wings: The Gospel According to Ruth." Yuri, thanks for joining us today. Dustin, it's always a real pleasure.